0: Turning back to Galatians chapter 5 at this time and to the words of verse 23. Galatians 5 and 23. We're coming to the final part of the fruit of the Spirit, the ninth part, and I've stressed throughout these messages that these things do not make us Christians. You can't become a Christian by trying to be more loving or more joyful or more patient or more gentle or More meek. These are fruits of the Spirit in the life of a Christian. And they are different parts of the one fruit of the Spirit, nine aspects or nine dimensions to it. And the Spirit cultivates these in the life of the child of God and does so throughout the life of that believer. And so we come this morning to the last one here in verse 23 the word temperance i will come god willing next lord's day morning to the final phrase in verse 23 where paul adds against such there is no law what does he mean by that and we'll look at that god willing next time but we're coming to temperance or self-control and so he tells us here the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace long suffering gentleness goodness faith meekness temperance or self-control so with our bibles open there let's seek the lord in a word of prayer and let me encourage you to pray the lord will speak to all of our hearts and challenge us and speak to us through his word at this time our heavenly father we thank thee for thy presence with us already today for time spent in prayer we thank thee for the hymns and the psalm we've been singing thy word we've read And Lord, we thank thee for the opportunity now to come around thy word. Lord, speak to our hearts. Write these truths deeply into our hearts, we pray. Lord, we will become more and more like the Savior. Those who know him as Savior, we will become more like him. And Lord, thy name will be glorified as that happens, as that takes place in our lives. So answer prayer. Fill me with thy spirit now. Give help in the preaching of thy word give help in the hearing of thy word too. Give special unction for the preaching of the word. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The word temperance that appears here in verse 23 only appears four times throughout the whole of the New Testament. It's a word that's made up of two words that mean in strength or in power. And when it's used in the New Testament it has to do with a person's ability to restrain or curb or master or control themselves. To restrain that which would hinder true godliness. It's a word that's usually understood to mean self-control or self-discipline. This is why Paul used it when he was speaking to Felix, the Roman governor. If you think back to acts chapter 24 paul was a prisoner at that time he's on his way to rome but he's brought before felix the governor and as he stands before that roman official paul takes the opportunity to press home the claims of the gospel i think it's very striking that paul did not speak to felix about politics he did not talk to him about the law of the land he did not deal with the arts or the social conditions in rome He didn't even appeal for himself. I think it's significant he doesn't even appeal for the churches that are facing persecution. Rather, Paul dealt with Felix on the issues of salvation. And Acts 24, verse 25 records that he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Three parts to his message. He reasons of righteousness. And by doing so, Paul emphasized to Felix the righteous standard of God's law. I have no doubt he stressed that the law as given by God in the Old Testament was broad and binding even on men like Felix. God had given his law and men were accountable to God for keeping that law. This message on righteousness would have left Felix in no doubt that the Ten Commandments were relevant and applicable to him as much as they were to anyone else. Then Paul talked about temperance or self-control. Now why would he have used that term? Having spoken about the law of God, why does he now come to talk to Felix about temperance? Because temperance reveals man's response to God's righteous law. Man's response to God's righteous law. And the point that Paul wanted to drive home to Felix's heart and mind was that Felix had not kept the law of God. He was controlled by sin. He had given himself to all manner of wickedness and worldliness and ungodliness. He was a slave to his own wicked passions. Of course, that led in turn to Paul's third theme here, his third line of thought, when he talked about righteousness and temperance and then judgment to come. Because of Felix's wicked and uncontrolled life, he was facing the judgment of God. And we're told that as Felix listened and Paul preached, that Felix the governor trembled. And he said to Paul, Go thy way, for this time... When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He did not like to be challenged about his sin and his sinful ways. And he did not like to hear about the judgment to come, the wrath that would follow those sinful ways of his. Intemperance is a mark of an unsaved person. But temperance or self-control is the mark of a Christian. In more recent times the word temperance has been identified more with alcohol than with anything else. A temperance society or a temperance lodge involves a group of people who seek to exercise self-control when it comes to drinking. They will abstain from alcohol and they will encourage others to do the same. But the biblical word goes much further than just alcohol. It undoubtedly includes a proper attitude to alcohol. And a very strong argument can be made from the scriptures that the best approach to wine and spirits and other alcoholic drinks is a temperance approach, a controlled approach, that involves abstaining from them completely. No one ever became a drunkard by following that way of thinking. But temperance doesn't stop with alcohol. It touches on every area of our lives. We are to exercise self-control in our thoughts. Not allowing them to wander off into things which God forbids. For a member of the man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23 verse 7. We're to exercise self-control over our time. Not wasting it on things that are detrimental to us. How much time is wasted and frittered away in things that could very well be done without. We're to exercise self control over our words. Not speaking rashly or foolishly or sinfully, but keeping a guard on our tongues. We're to exercise self control over our money. Money is important, but the love of money is the root of all evil, and we are accountable to God for how we spend the money that He gives to us. We're to exercise self control over our actions and over our reactions. We're to exercise self-control before God in times of happiness and in times of sadness. We are to exercise self-control in every area of our lives. The Christian is not to be taken up with worldly thinking and secret sins and secret lusts and passions. We are to be self-controlled people. The word temperance has something to say to all of us, young or old all of us in absolutely every area of our lives, public and private. But Let me give a word of caution here. This word is not teaching sinless perfection. There are some who teach we can be sinlessly perfect in this life. They argue, in fact, that that's God's will. And anything short of sinless perfection is sinful. Well, while we are to be holy... We will not be perfectly holy until we reach glory. So temperance here, this aspect of self-control, it's not arguing for sinless perfection. It is arguing for self-control in our lives. And as Galatians 5 and 23 puts it, it is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And I might suggest a very important part of the fruit of the Spirit. So let's look at this this morning under three particular headings. Let's think, first of all, on the battle for self-control. The battle for self-control. Records show that one of the longest wars in the history of the world involved Spanish and Portuguese forces against Muslim rulers of the Iberian Peninsula. It's claimed that that war lasted for 781 years. Obviously, generations came and went, and armies rose and fell. But over that 781 years, these nations, these people, were at some kind of conflict. There have been other wars throughout the history of the world that have lasted almost as long. But there is an even greater war, a longer war, A spiritual war that has continued right from the beginning of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's a war that involves the flesh and the spirit. And it's ongoing, believer, to this day. It's the battle of sanctification. The battle for holiness. The holy war that concerns the Christian and the Christian's life for God. The Westminster Confession of Faith addresses this in the chapter on sanctification. This is what it says, this sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war, The flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. A continual and irreconcilable war. Isn't that the truth of verse 17 in this chapter? For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Peter jumps in with a similar statement in 1 Peter 2 and verse 11 when he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So what Paul is saying and what Peter is saying is that the Christian is involved in a spiritual battle. And this spiritual battle rages in every area of the Christian's life. And it certainly rages in the area of self control. Godly self control is an ongoing challenge for the Christian. Haven't you found that to be the case? You know what you should do, but you struggle to do the right thing. You know that certain thoughts should not be in your mind. Certain thoughts are are wrong and impure, but you let those thoughts linger there. You know that you should not be reacting the way you are reacting to a certain set of circumstances, but you keep on reacting that same way. You know that you're doing things that your conscience testifies against and indicates to you that those very things that you're engaged in are contrary to the will of God, but you keep on doing them. It seems you have self-control one day, but very little self-control the next. It's a battle. It's an ongoing battle that every child of God faces in the Christian life. Why? Why is that? Why is it such a, a struggle? It's a battle because sin continues to dwell within us. Believe it, that's a foundational truth we must never forget. Salvation means that we are saved from the penalty of sin. We will not be damned in hell because of our sin, because Christ has taken that punishment for us. Christ has died for us. We are saved too, not only from the penalty of sin, we are saved from the power of sin. Sin does not have the same dominion over us. The reign of sin has been broken. And we will be saved from the presence of sin. I say we will be because we are not yet. We are still in this body. We're still on this earth. We're still in this world. And while we're in this body, on this earth, in this world, we will struggle with the presence of sin. Paul addresses this very powerfully in Romans chapter 7. These are the words of a saved man. What does he say? What does Paul, the apostle Paul, the great theologian, the great church planter, the great missionary What does he say in regard to this battle that we face? He said in verse 18, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now understand what he's saying there. Paul has been very honest here with himself. He's been very honest with his readers. He's saying the things that I would do, I do not. The things that I would not do, I find myself doing. He goes on to say, Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Believer, those are not flippant words from Paul. They identify a very real conflict. A conflict that rages in the heart of every Christian. Paul goes on to say in verse 22 of that same chapter, Romans 7, he says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? From this body of this death. Why was Paul facing such a struggle? Because sin dwelt within him. And this struggle rages within us. And therefore, there's a battle. There's a battle when it comes to to temperance, there's a battle in the Christian's life when it comes to self control. To commanding ourselves or controlling ourselves. There's a battle because of indwelling sin. We battle with sinful desires. With sinful desires. Wasn't that the case with King David? He knew the Lord. David was a man after God's own heart. He walked with God. He accomplished much for God's glory. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he was overcome with ungodly lust and ungodly passions. He saw Bathsheba. He desired to have her for himself. He showed at that time in his life, David showed no self-control. And his desires took him far from God. He should have been away with his armies fighting. He should not have been gazing upon Bathsheba and certainly not asking after her and bringing her to the palace to be with him. He had no self-control at that time. He was being controlled by sinful desires. It's no wonder Paul told young Timothy, flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Believer, understand this. We can. We can harbor sinful desires. The Christian can allow his or her mind to dwell on things that are sinful. We can. And the love of things can ruin our love for God. That's why we must guard our hearts. That's why we must exercise self-control over our thoughts. What are the things you're desiring in life? Do you think about the things you're desiring? Do you think about the things that come into your mind and ask yourself the question, are they in line with God's word? Are they for your good? Are they right before God's? Or are the desires that flood your mind? Are they sinful desires? We battle with sinful desires. We battle with sinful deceptions. You know, the devil would deceive us. He's the master at deceiving. But we often deceive ourselves. How often have you tried to justify your sin? How often have you thought, well, no one has seen me, therefore it's not really a big issue. No, you know, we so deceive ourselves that we think, well, if someone else has seen us, it's a terrible thing. And what happens if they tell that? And what happens if they announce that to someone else? Or what happens if we get caught out with that sin? But if no one sees us, we think, well, it's not so bad. But we forget, don't we, that God sees us. We forget that if no one else sees what we're doing, that there's a God in heaven who sees it all. But we deceive ourselves with that thought. Well, no one has seen me, therefore it's not a big issue. How often have you reasoned in your heart, just once more, and then I'll give it up. Just once more, and then I'll be done with it. How often have you tried to explain away something by thinking, well, it's not as bad as some other people are doing. It's it's acceptable in society. It's not so bad, therefore I don't need to worry too much about it. How often have you said to yourself, and you've argued with yourself, well, I couldn't really help it, and I I, I didn't really mean it. Or I was with friends and it would have been difficult for me to say, no, I'm not doing that when everyone else is going to do that. And it doesn't really matter. It's such a little thing anyway. And we argue with ourselves and we deceive ourselves into thinking that the sin that we're about to engage in or are presently engaging in is somehow acceptable. And we justify it. To human heart, John Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols, it just keeps producing idols. But the human heart is also a factory of deceits, it just keeps producing arguments and deceiving us. And it can come up with a whole host of excuses and, and, and justifications and, and reasons for things that are inexcusable and unjustifiable, but the human heart can come up with them. My friend, that's all part of the battle for self-control. We battle with sinful desires. We battle with sinful deceptions. We battle with sinful distractions too. Sinful distractions. The people of Israel often followed, often followed the ways of the heathen nations around them. Oh, they knew the law of God. They were there at Mount Sinai when the Mount was in smoke and and the thunders were sounding, the lightnings were there, and God spoke to the entire nation. They knew the law of God when they came into the promised land, but they liked the ways of the world. And they were often distracted by the ways of the heathen. And believer, we can be the same. We can become desensitized to the world. We can watch the same movies that numb us to what is right and wrong. We can read material that blurs the lines. We can listen to stuff that's contrary to God's word and we begin to imbibe the thought process and we are distracted by the world and as a result as Christians we don't exercise self-control. This is what Paul is talking to these Galatians about the need for self-control, the need for temperance. Sin dwells within us. Sin is all around us. And with that combination of sin within us and sin around us, there's a raging battle when it comes to temperance. There's a raging battle when it comes to self-control. It's always easier, isn't it, to see others who fall in this area. We can very quickly point Point out their faults and pick out their feelings. Oh, that person doesn't have much control there. Look at what they're doing. Not much discipline in that life. But we're very slow sometimes to see our own lack of self control. Our very own intemperance. And so you have the battle the battle for self control. Let me say something secondly about the basis of self-control. The basis of self-control. I remember distinctly as a young Christian a time struggling with my own walk with God. And I would discover I would keep falling into the same sins time and time again. I would think I'd have the victory and then I would fall again. And when I would fall into Particular matters and particular things, I I would plan to do better the next time. And I would make another resolution and I would determine to try harder. And for a little time, that would work and things were fine. And then before long, I was back again, failing and falling and struggling and sinning. And I felt worthless. And I felt useless as a Christian. Maybe you're here this morning. That's exactly how you feel. Maybe you're a young Christian, and that's exactly how it is with you today. You're struggling. You're, you're, you're conscious of your feelings, but you keep failing. You keep falling. You keep yielding to the same temptation, and it seems that victory is as far away as ever. I didn't realise it at the time. But during those years, I was depending on myself. I was saved as a young person, but I had the notion that going on with God was something that wholly depended upon me. That was all down to what I could do. And all I needed to do was make better resolutions, try a little harder, and something along the line would change and I would have the victory. But I was horribly wrong. Dr. Alan Cairns, in his book on the Fruit of the Spirit, makes this telling and very important comment. He says, gaining control of ourselves is not a work of self, but a fruit of God's Holy Spirit. It is not a matter of willpower or of making resolutions one decision, one trip down a church aisle will not produce this fruit of self rule. In other words, this is not something we can do in and of ourselves. That was my big mistake as a young Christian. I was depending upon myself, I was depending upon myself to control myself. But self control is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who produces this. It is the Holy Spirit who produces the subduing of the flesh as spiritual fruit in the lives of his people. And he does so according to grace. Grace. Believer, that's the key. Our justification, our salvation is an act of God's free grace. And our sanctification, our growing in holiness, our victory when it comes to temperance, our sanctification is the work of God's free grace. God's grace toward us in Christ rests at the heart of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You think of this, it is grace. It is grace that has brought us into union with Christ. We would never have been saved were it not for the grace of God. Paul says that in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. God was gracious to us. God saved us. He granted us the experience of the new birth. He put his spirit within us. He pardoned all our sins. He gave us faith to believe. He made us new creatures in Christ Jesus. We are in union with Christ, and we are in union with Christ because of his grace. We didn't deserve that. Grace is God's unmerited favor. His unmerited favor to those who deserve his wrath. And we were put into union with Christ according to God's eternal grace. It's grace that brought us into union with Christ. It is grace that enables us to live for Christ. We have no power to live unto Christ by ourselves. I wish I had learned that as a young believer. It took me some time to learn that. That we have no power in and of ourselves to live for Christ. At best, we are weak. At best, we are unprofitable. At best, we are without strength, but God gives us grace to live for him. My grace is sufficient for thee, he tells Paul. And Paul reminds us in Hebrews chapter 4 that there is grace to help in times of need. Believer, we need grace. But thank God there's grace for us. There is grace that enables us to live unto Christ. It is grace that conforms us to Christ. How can you become more like the Savior? How can I become more like the Savior? How can I know more love, joy, peace, gentleness and goodness and meekness and faith and temperance? How can I know more of that in my Christian life? How can I become more like Christ in my Christian experience? By making better resolutions? By trying harder in my Christian life? No, by grace. By grace. And by grace I am enabled To exercise self-control. By grace I'm enabled to exercise faith in God and trust his word. By faith I'm able to look unto Christ who gives me strength to live the Christian life and to become more like him. It's grace that leads us to glorify Christ. It is grace that nourishes us in Christ. It's all of grace. The fruit of the Spirit in the life of a Christian is never apart from grace. And as it's never apart from grace, it's never apart from Christ. Christ died to save us. And his righteousness has been imputed to us. And he sanctifies us according to his promise. He sanctifies us according to his power. And he sanctifies us according to his purpose. Now that doesn't mean we have nothing at all to do. We live by faith. By faith in Christ. And this is the basis of the fruit of the Spirit. Including this part, this part of temperance. A self-controlled Christian life. A life where we mortify the deeds of the flesh. A life where we redeem the time. A life where we seek to glorify God and enjoy him. A life of Practical holiness, a life of genuine godliness is possible, not by our numerous resolutions, but by our looking on to Christ and seeking by his power to obey his word, to exercise our self-control in the light of Scripture. Believer, we need to realize that we are in Christ. He dwells in us. And he enables us to live for him. We're not left left to drift through this world on our own. Bouncing from one failure to another. Falling here and falling there. Constantly backsliding and losing out with God. No, by faith we look to Christ for victory. And he gives us the power. He gives us the power. To exercise self-control. This is what Paul means in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Who begun that good work in us? It was Christ. Who will continue that good work in us? Who will perform it? It's Christ. And he does it by grace. And by grace he enables us to exercise self-control. The battle For self-control, the basis of self-control. Let me say something lastly and quickly about the blessing of self-control. There's nothing good and there's nothing godly about an intemperate attitude to life, a life that's out of control, a life that's ill-disciplined, Solomon said in Proverbs twenty five and verse twenty eight, he said, He that hath no rule over his own spirit. That's that's what Galatians five is all about. He that has no rule over his own spirit, who doesn't exercise self control, who, who isn't marked with temperance, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. A broken down city without walls. A city that has been ransacked and ruined and left as a heap of rubble. There's nothing attractive about that, is there? A broken city without walls. Nothing attractive there. And there's nothing attractive about a person who lacks this Christian virtue. To have no rule over your own spirit. To be out of control when it comes to things that are in line with God's words. To be ill-disciplined in the Christian life. To live a way that ignores the laws of God. To be careless about your thoughts. To be Careless with your words, and talk like the world with all of its filth and innuendo. to be careless with your actions, to be out of control when it comes to your time, where you just waste time in the things that are sinful. to be out of control when it comes to your responsibilities. It's an unattractive thing. It's not pleasing to God. It's not good for yourself. There's nothing good about that. Nothing good about an ill-disciplined, ill-controlled life. But there's a blessing in the fruit of the Spirit here. It's a blessing to us individually to be self-controlled. This is not, this is not bondage. This is life. To walk with God in the light of his word. To be self-controlled and to love mercy and to do justly and to walk humbly with God. Believer, that's a blessing. That, that, that will spare us and save us from so much heartache in the Christian life. It's a blessing to us individually. It's a blessing to other believers. It sets an example that they can follow, that that younger Christians will follow. And believer, let let me say this, for those of us who are older, younger Christians do watch us. And therefore we can be a huge blessing to them by exercising self-control. We can be a huge hindrance to them if we don't. It's a blessing to us individually. It's a blessing to other believers. It's a blessing in the gospel as a witness, as a testimony to others that they would look at us and say something different about that person. Not just in the area of self-control but in the area of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness. There's something different about that person. I wish I had what they have. It's also a blessing because it brings glory to God remember where we began this series in John 15 verse 16 that we have been chosen to bring forth fruit and that our fruit should remain the more spiritual fruit we bring forth the more glory we bring to God therefore it's a blessing because our chief end why are we here Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Tell me, believer, do you desire more of this in your life? Maybe you're struggling with this right now. Maybe you've struggled for some time with this. And you've wrestled with it and you've wondered how can you get the victory here. Well, here's the answer. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, let us pray. Let us pray for more of this spiritual fruit in our lives. Let's pray for victory over sin and pray for power in the face of temptations. Pray for grace to be self-controlled. Pray for a greater consciousness of God's presence and God's power and pray depending upon God to meet our needs. He will. Because he has promised to do so. This is what it is that Paul is talking about in verse 16, walking in the Spirit. This is what he means in verse 18 when he talks about being led by the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, showing forth the fruit of the Spirit, are all connected. And it stands in stark contrast to the works of the flesh. So may God enable us and grant us grace to live for him. And then he wraps it all up with this statement, against such there is no law. There's no law of God against this. This is all in line with the law of God. All in line with the law of God. So may God give us grace in these days. Let's unite our hearts together in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We bless Thee for these words in these two verses of Scripture that are so applicable, so relevant so important for us. Lord, I pray today that I would come and write thy word upon our hearts. Give us grace to be self-controlled people, to know what it is to walk circumspectly, carefully in a Christ-like way that we will bring glory to thy name. We thank thee for thy grace that enables us. We're not left on our own in this. We thank thee for the Spirit's work. So Lord, answer prayer for us. Bless those who will stay around thy table, be with those who will leave at this time. Lord, minister to our hearts as we wait before thee. We ask in Jesus' name.